Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 55, the review segment for Friday, January 23rd, 2015. Uh, most of my usual podcast friends are off at Sundance, which means I'm left to talk about some boring old leftover 2014 movies that are in the Oscar race. And I've brought in uh, two of my cohorts, or possibly three if we can be joined, uh, from the Film Experience podcast, Joe Reed and Nick Davis. I'm so excited you guys are here on this very special crossover episode. I love what you've done with this war room. <laughs> yeah, fancy new digs. I love it. Just be sure to follow. I like really make it. Yeah, and uh, I, we're usually a pretty uh, agreeable bunch, but maybe there'll be less fighting in than in the usual episodes. I don't know. Maybe we'll be uh, more argumentative than usual. I won't bring up Foxcatcher, Katie. <laughs> you're totally safe. All right. Yes. We're, we're in my experience, American Sniper tends to help people get along easily. So. <laughs> I don't see any trouble. It's been such an agreeable movie throughout it's this. Uh, so, it's, it's a uniter. Yeah, shooting Iraqis really, is really what brings us all together as Americans. <laughs> um, American Sniper, I was planning to talk about in this before. It somehow became like this record-breaking mega hit, which I still can't make sense out of, and maybe you guys can help me do. But uh, in this week's earlier episode with the uh, regular crew, we talked about kind of the movie as a hit and you know what it meant that it was such a big deal. But I kind of want to hear about it as a movie itself. I kind of watched it on a screener, like not in the best way. I was disinterested in it from the very beginning, and I'm willing to acknowledge that I might have missed something. And then uh, Nick Davis, I believe you like this movie a lot more than most people have and i kind of want to hear from you first about it i loved it um i was i mean i go all up and down you know with eastwood movies i think you guys maybe do too like that you don't ever sort of only love or only not love them um and i i don't know if it was that this this seemed like a potentially interesting project for him or the army brat thing where i'm always a little bit curious to see how the military gets represented but um I, i guess by the time i saw it Maybe we were all in this position that we had, I don't know, well, did, did you guys all walk in thinking that, like, I have to find out whether I think the politics of this movie are bad, or was that not on your minds yet? I think I had already, give, like, succumbed to that. I think I just assumed going in that the politics were going to be both from, you know, what the novel that they were, uh, the novel, the... <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, well, yeah. arguably. Yeah. That's maybe a Freudian slip. Um, the book that they were adapting and the fact that it was Eastwood, I think I had assumed that the politics were going to be probably even more right-wing than they than they turned out to be. I think – I don't think I agree that this movie is completely in the middle and sort of like, well, you decide. Like, I think this movie has a, a right-leaning conservative slant to it, but it wasn't as – extreme and and aggressive in that way as i was expecting it to be yeah i I think i was less concerned about the politics than the eastwoodiness of it and the idea that he kind of made this movie in as short a period of time as possible and didn't really care that much about it and i I had definitely hadn't been hearing about the fake baby yet but uh you know i missed it i oh man i but i was watching on a screener so it was one of those things where like the picture is small and I'm able to sort of like, while Sienna Miller's talking, I probably like turned away for a second yeah. um, and missed the egregiousness of that. The greatest controversy of our time. Um, <laughs> but the, so, so with the politics, I think I, um, I'm, 
I agree with Joe that are a little bit fuzzier than maybe they could have been, but the kind of lackadaisical eastwoodiness of it, I just found so unavoidable and found it so indifferently made in a way. And I kind of want, that's what I'm interested to find that Nick so loves so much in it. Yeah, I, I guess like all of us, you know, I'm pretty used to feeling like I'm sometimes watching B-roll when I look at Eastwood <laughs> movies and thinking like, you know, maybe a second take would have helped here. But I did, I just didn't feel that way in this movie. Um, and and I, so, so much so that I don't even have images called to mind of what would have bothered people as seeming indifferent about it. Like I grant that the domestic scenes were full of lines that I've heard before and um, sometimes, you know, a bit strenuously played, especially by Sienna Miller. Um, so I didn't feel like those were as tight maybe as the ones in the war, but um, I, yeah, I just, I, I've, I felt so gripped by the construction of the unique suspense in each individual moment, the sniping scenes or the, the battlefront scenes did not feel repetitive to me. Um, it felt like it was in this really interesting balance where I was spending a lot of time with Chris Kyle without exactly learning more about him, but it wasn't only a movie about Chris Kyle and got some of the group dynamic and some of the local context. I don't know. I just, I felt like I was getting a lot. I mean, I feel like the, the repetitiveness kind of continues in some of those battlefront scenes where you've got him kind of out in the field with his buddies and there's like a, you know, there's war movie tropes that in some ways, like, that's what makes a war movie really interesting. But it did start feeling repetitive to me, especially when it kind of keeps dipping back into the well of like this one sniper who he's fighting oh. against, which I didn't know anything about the the truth of that story when I saw the movie, but it just, it did, it rang really false to me even before I knew that it hadn't really turned out that way. Yeah. Really, that stuff to me felt really cartoony. That stuff to me felt very, uh, like like I'm not going to be able to follow this if I don't have this sort of clearly defined opposite for him. Mm-hmm. That you know that that I need to have his sort of you know the the coyote to his roadrunner and this <laughs> in this war. It felt every time they went back to it. I kind of couldn't believe that it was that felt like grade school almost to me. And I think that recalled to me some of my problems with the earlier like the earliest parts of the movie where I mean, I think Cooper gets better as the movie goes along, but in those some of those early scenes I thought he was actually really weak and really uh not entire I wasn't entirely buying him as this guy. It felt like Bradley Cooper putting on a performance and, and Sienna Miller doesn't help in those regards at all. Are you like, not a Sienna Miller fan? I, I'm just not. And I, and I, I sort of for a while there sort of fought against that. I sort of stuck up for her in factory girl a little bit. And cause she seemed like a punching bag for a while, but I just don't think like she's to me does not seem like a dynamic actress to be acting opposite with in a scene. So she's having a comeback this year. Uh, yeah, playing videos of the life people. <laughs> I'm hoping to make it into the final cut over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I felt the way you guys feel about the other sniper a little bit more about the uh, I don't remember his name already, but the guy with the drill, the the person uh, who they. Oh yeah, and see, I kept getting him mixed up with the other sniper, which is okay. possibly my own fault and lack of attention. Um, but Mustafa, I think, is the name of the other sniper. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, yes. I guess in his case, I felt like the movie was was making it allowable. 
I felt like I was processing him both as a real figure within the sense of the story, but also as a clearly heightened kind of foil figure. I didn't think the movie was covering its tracks too much about how this was just kind of a mirror image of the guy we're spending all this time with. Um, so he, he played to me as sort of semi-fantasy in a sense. Oh, it's, do you feel like there's other parts of the movie? I mean, because like the whole idea that Chris Kyle like fabricated a lot of details of his life, like that's a really interesting wrinkle that I didn't feel like was in the movie. But do you feel like those kind of fantasy elements or possibly fantasy elements lent itself to that? Well, I guess not. I mean, not in the sense that I thought he was making it up, but just in the sense that I thought the movie was. I mean, we don't have any scenes where he's in where that Mustafa character seems to come from anywhere i don't remember there being a lot of i mean occasionally there's just a like he's out you know and he sort of has to pick up whatever he's doing and go try to get bradley cooper but there didn't seem like an attempt to give him in the letters from iwo jima way a sort of backstory or home life or immediate context of his own um Mm -hmm. which made him just seem like a narrative mechanism to me but in a way that i that didn't bother me um it just felt like he was kind of the Claire Quilty of the movie or something. Um, hmm. Just the, this, this mirror image and also antagonist at the same time. I didn't love the scene of the bullet sort of fired at him toward the end. That seemed a little much. But um, all the slow motion and weird yeah. visual effects like following that bullet. But then the sandstorm came, which was everything. So I didn't care. Yeah, the sandstorm was. I like the sandstorm a lot, but there's a there's a couple moments like that. Like, I think especially near the end, where he uh, is meeting up with the guy who will then kill him at the shooting range, where it kind of like lingers in this really pretentious way that just feels so clunky and old fashioned and not in an interesting way. Where like there are all these shortcuts taken with like amping up the drama, and you know, compared to scenes where there really is legitimate drama intentions, like the uh, the very first scene where he's kind of deciding whether or not to take the shot on this little kid, like that there's stuff like that that really works that when there's these weird shortcuts taken, it just, it feels like laziness to me. Hmm. I also, and that was actually, I thought the best film scene of the movie, the, the first where he shoots the woman and then he's basically begging the kid not to pick up the device mm-hmm. and incredibly tense, incredibly sort of like well done manipulative. Sure. But like not in a way that I'm going to begrudge. Um, But also in a way that I found, like, politically squicky, and I don't know how fair that is to bring, you know, personal politics into that. But that, to me, felt like we're maybe asking the audience to feel more sympathy for a character than is maybe warranted. I don't know. More sympathy for him, like, for the position he's in for them? Yeah, I don't know. And this gets into, like, how much I'm prepared to believe Chris Kyle, like the the man, the real life person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, part of me feels kind of like, I don't know how much I should be. It's the same part of me that feels like, well, just because I want the end of the movie to be about this guy who killed him and sort of delve into that. And I want to see more of that. That's not the movie that Eastwood made. And maybe I shouldn't be penalizing him for not making, you know, a different movie. Yeah. Um, but it's it's still doesn't sit entirely well with me. Well, the problem that so many of this year's movies had, like the the final credits, white titles, like telling you what happened after the end of the movie, where it's much more interesting than the movie itself. Like that just keeps happening. And it's not American Sniper's fault, but I yeah, remind me of the imitation a little bit. Yeah, there. imitation game and um, theory of everything in some ways. And then I feel like there's one more where like 
the what happened afterward. Unbroken. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Unbroken, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest one. Which yeah. was like, you had two hours to make a movie. This would have been a good subject for one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The actors and everything. It's right there. Yeah. Well, and then like, so that problem and then the, you know, many storm and drongs about historical accuracy and all the, so many of the movies that are contending right now. But right. Um, I take that point about how that one scene, especially the second scene that you were talking about, Joe, later on of, of hoping that he does not have to shoot a second child. Yeah. Um, that, that the balance of that is so much about how hard this is for him. Um, and I guess if you put that, like that seems like the closest the movie came to me to putting two problematic strains in dialogue. Like this does not sound like the Chris Kyle that we read about. And this sounds like it's internally in the movie, weighting it toward sympathy with the sniper. Yeah. Way in excess. Um, but I guess unlike something like the imitation gamer, in a sense, even Foxcatcher, I felt like, um, this movie was working on terms that felt pretty coherent within it, even if this is not the person who lived and breathed and was called Chris Kyle. Like, they've clearly reinvented the character, it would seem. Oh, um, yeah. But it didn't seem like there were stress marks all over the movie of this can't possibly be the case. And I'm, I, right. I'd probably prefer a movie about this person than the actual guy. Um, no, I totally take your point, and I, and I, and I want to sort of reiterate particularly in light of everything that's been going on with Selma, that like fidelity to objective truth, if that's even possible is not so much my issue so much as what, what you brought up, which is, you know, of the two people in this scenario between Bradley Cooper as Chris Kyle and this child, like I'm being asked to feel sorry for Bradley Cooper as Chris Kyle. And that weirded me out. And yet, I have to say, I never thought that... I I only experienced every moment where an Iraqi person is shot with the sort of difference of... Well, I mean, he wasn't shot, but, like, you know, with the the difference of the nutso guy with the drill who just put me in a mystic river place of boys at awkward Clint Eastwood tries to envision just pure evil. It's always Uh awkward. But him aside... I never felt like the film was waving a pom-pom when any Iraqi got shot. Like, the scene was horrifying. It was usually really short. Um, It did not always or even often involve them doing something obviously bad, except maybe trying to stay alive the same way he was. Yeah. Um, So, Sorry, go go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, I don't think I saw pom-pom waving either, but I feel like there's still a way to not dehumanize the other side, but to sort of uh, make that the less important humanization of the two. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Separate but not equal. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the way that, I mean, and this is going to make me sound like Sarah Palin, but like the extent to which this movie kind of like supports the troops and understands the troops and looks at a way that war takes its toll in a really pro-war way is really interesting. Like it's not saying that like it was a wrong thing to be in this war. It kind of basically uh, equates the Iraq war with 9-11 in a way that's, you know, also not that historically accurate. It's pretty irresponsible, I would say. Yeah. yeah it's Yeah. If you want to talk about historical accuracies that are a little grating, that one's a little strange. Um, but I do think it's interesting and worthwhile to look at the toll that this takes. Like, I mean, especially for a lot of the, like, you know, coastal elites that were also seeing American Sniper Unlimited release before it became this big mega hit. Like, 
he's thought a lot about the toll on the Iraqis and maybe not as much about the toll on the people who were shooting them. And that is a worthwhile thing to address, even if, like, Joe, I, I think I get where you're coming from, where you feel like your sympathies are in the wrong place. But I do think kind of looking at the toll that it takes and, you know, the way that tears this one guy apart is a valid way to tell a war story. Sure. As, as a coastal elite, I will, uh, I'll take that point. <laughs> hey, I saw burlesque in Buffalo. You're a man of the people. Nick, the coast you, of Lake Erie. Yeah. Um, Nick, do you feel like in the, I mean, and I feel like honestly the American sniper debate is just beginning and I'm a little bit dreading that, but do you think that yeah. people, uh, especially just with the film itself and with Eastwood, like, do you think people are not, are not giving it the shot that it deserves in terms of, you know, expecting it to be lazy Eastwood and then there's more to the movie than that? I don't know. And, and, you know, I can't even say that I've done due diligence to sort of read enough of the pieces that are out there. I mean, I read Mark Harris's. I read, you know, I've maybe read two or three. Um, so I can't comment too much on, on what I think people are or are not bringing to the film and the way they're reading it. Um, but, and I feel like, you know, if, if you, I mean, Eastwood would have nobody to blame for himself if he's got an enormous section of his audience who can't take it on faith anymore that he's taking his movies seriously That's or true. that he's not working too quickly or, you know, it has happened so many times and maybe even after like even maybe more than him. I think that the, the fact that I just don't see that there's a lot of gainsaying the fact that some of his fans are actually his worst enemies. Like if you can't stop the impulse to defend hereafter or Invictus or Jersey boys. Um, although I guess I didn't see as much of that. Like, yeah, I don't know if I saw anybody defending Jersey boys. <laughs> um, it's just, it's not, you know, you're, you're creating an environment where people are going to feel justifiably suspicious, not just of the movies, but of the expectation that they give them the benefit of the doubt. And then you make something like this, it's going to involve a lot of benefits of the doubt. Like, this is a really gutsy, um, you know, depending on where you're coming from, gutsy, tasteless, problematic, whatever, project. Um, it would help to feel like this is an artist people see with pretty clear eyes and not from pre-entrenched positions. Yeah. Um, but... I guess I was kind of, I don't know if I was surprised. I don't know why I, I don't know. I just didn't feel like as I sat there in the movie, it felt um, rushed. Well, and a lot of people who are seeing this and making it a big hit don't have those preconceived notions of Clint Eastwood. I mean, at least presumably most of them didn't see Hereafter or Invictus and are kind of coming to this totally, maybe not even knowing what his directorial style is at all. So there's some kind of uh, validation there, I think. And I think there are moments, I mean... I'm not the biggest Unforgiven fan in the world, and that was a movie that I thought was almost... Uh, there, there are passages in that movie where, as many times as I've tried to watch it, it just feels a little suffocated by how strenuously it's trying to make sure you understand that it sees the darkness in this violence, and that this is <laughs> yeah. definitely an anti-hero. And the photography and the dialogue and the performances are all making sure you can't fail to mistake that. And so there was something about the relative, um, maybe it's only relative, but the relative ease of American Sniper that it does feel a little more relaxed and you are required to come to your own decisions about Chris more than have the movie bend over backwards to tell you something about him that I actually liked about it, which might also look lackadaisical because it doesn't seem like he's trying as hard to convince you of something. But... I think that's part of why I liked it. Yeah, I feel like this movie sort of 
I think I had stopped seeing Clint Eastwood as an artist of several movies ago. <laughs> and, and, and I and I sort of that mean that somewhat as a punchline. Maybe. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, Speaking of I think at some doubt, point Jesus. just felt like he's churning out these movies to sort of get them on screen. And I feel like I can't remember if maybe even like Letters from Iwo Jima was the last time. That was also the last one that I really liked. Um, the last time I sort of saw artistic choices being made instead of expedient ones. Yeah. And it's, it's so I'm, I found myself with this movie having a hard time sort of getting sped up again. It's sort of like that highway on ramp where like, I've got to, I've got to get my speed up to, uh, to receive this movie in the way that, uh, some people are receiving it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think at this point, I feel like I honestly need to watch it again with that eyes open quality, yeah. even if I don't necessarily see anything in it. I feel the same way. I'm, yeah. I'm, I wasn't prepared for... I was more surprised by how many people wrote to me to tell me how stunned they were that I liked it than I was surprised that I liked it. So I'm just kind of suspicious that I might see it a second time and go, oh, <laughs> that's what they're talking about. Uh, but it just, it just wasn't what the first viewing was like for me. I just... I'm... I'm begging people out there to not make this into these kind of people like American Sniper and these kind of people yeah. don't like American Sniper. As as true or as seemingly true as that may be in a lot of cases, it bums me out. And I will probably end up doing, you know, falling prey to that myself. But like... I don't know this whole that whole thing where the New York Times was like, well, finally a family friendly film. Whew, yeah. Amid amid all those Oscar nominees from the right. elites, like it's such bullshit and it's such like openly dishonest. Yeah, I, I can't emphasize enough the fact that like it was this huge hit and limited release in New York and Los Angeles before it opened wide at all. Like it was yeah, doing right. really well, and I can't. I, I like I said at the top, I still can't quite figure out why but it is it's been doing really well in a lot of places and uh right yeah leave sarah palin out of it <laughs> like well and maybe leave selma out of it like the, yeah the deluge of like you're with selma yeah. you're with sniper and that's the kind of person that you are i mean even from a lot of writers i'm sympathetic to or in a lot of pieces i you know otherwise liked um this isn't the only reason that those are my two favorites of the nominees, but it, they are definitely the two movies with a figure at the center who I think I could stand to think a little bit more about. Like, whatever I decide about the yeah. Chris Kyle world, I don't feel that inundated with good information about them or even yeah. storytelling that has asked me to take them seriously. And so the idea that I think both of those movies are kind of out on a limb to force you to really assess a character and his project that's yeah. pretty difficult. And the idea that we should oppose them or that well, that's also, that ruined things for Selma, I just can't deal with that too well. Also, there is maximum one category out there where you could even make the claim that American Sniper edged out Selma. Which is best like, actor, they, right? They both made best picture. They both missed best director. And yeah. it would like Cooper got best actor over Oyelowo. But like, I feel like that's a stretch to sort of hang your entire this versus that th uh, premise on Bradley Cooper edging out David Oyelowo and Best Actor. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I wanted to get you guys to talk 
uh, Oscars real briefly before we ended. This Us? Really? Okay. I know. I know. Yeah. This is a good introduction to what we're really about when we do our regular podcast. Um, what happens when Ehrlich goes to Sundance? Everything goes to shit on Sorry, your Sorry, David. Well, he won't listen to it, so he'll never know. Um, <laughs> but I started, I was on the subway with uh, Chris Rosen, who writes for the Huffington Post, kind of cooking up this cockamamie theory that uh, Bradley Cooper could win Best Actor after all of this. Uh, am I nuts? Do you guys see any logic to that? Well, I was just reading, I was just clicking through your, your gallery of Bradley's past. Oh, yeah, I had a good time doing that. Which is the kind of thing I'm prone to do. <laughs> um, yeah, and that was the first time that I had seen that theory floated. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Gosh. <laughs> I don't, I, that, that whole category is so confusing. It still seems like Keaton to me, but what do well, I know? My knee-jerk reaction is to be like, no. But the more, you know, <laughs> think about it, like, we don't know. I mean, Keaton and Redmayne both won Golden Globes, and we don't really know what the balance is between the two of them. And American Sniper is getting hot at the right time, but nobody really expects it to win Best Picture. Yeah. So I'm wondering if this is like a 2002 thing where like Daniel Day-Lewis and Jack Nicholson were like neck and neck. And then there comes the pianist like breaking at the right time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that eventually also did win in, in Best Director, but it wasn't, you know, it was still going to come up short in Best Picture, but, like, people are funneling those votes somewhere. And the thing about Bradley Cooper being on his third consecutive nomination can is a very sort of capitalizable hook Yeah. for a smart campaigner. I was thinking about The Pianist, and I was also thinking about Argo in a weird way, because the narrative of that movie changed when the nominations came out and the narrative yes. of American Sniper has changed significantly since it's become this huge hit in a year when none of the other Best Picture nominees are big hits. And yeah. I think that can make, that can put an excitement around it and make people look at it. You know, even though he doesn't have the SAG nomination, I think there's enough of a story there with that third nomination. And the fact that, I mean, Bradley Cooper seems pretty likable. He's worked with a lot of people. There's all this stuff in his favor that neither Michael Keaton or Eddie Redmayne has in that way. Yeah. I mean, I'd be entirely susceptible to possibly voting for Cooper myself in this race, but it feels to me like the way in which it's become a story since the nominations has a tinge of, wait, was this too much? Like, did it make too much money? Is three nominations too much for Bradley Cooper? Um, that that it seems to be throwing people back on their heels a little bit by, mm -hmm. by contrast to the Argo, Selma, an injustice right. that's performed, which mm -hmm. I think is, um, if... if if any movie's narrative post nominations gives it some hope, I would think it would be Selma before it would be the sniper crowd. But I am what? excited that I feel like it might open up things for. It feels like the kind of nomination that just makes Cooper more castable in a bigger range of roles, mm -hmm. um, more than I expect they'll win from it. Well, either way, I think that's a. I mean, that's a good outcome because I think he's shown yeah. the willingness to like really dig into things. I think he's really good in the movie too, as much as I'm not really a big fan of it. And uh, yeah. You know, if he's continuing to take risks, like to the extent of you know playing Elephant Man on Broadway or something, I think that could make him a really interesting as a, like a bankable star, which he definitely is at this point. Right. Oh yeah. Um, it also was the first movie in a while. Not that I would allege anything or have any information, but if you were perceived to be angsty about whether or not to come out because you were perceived to be a danger of not getting cast in roles that would be harder to give you if you were seen as a gay person. This movie did seem like it would have been harder for you to be in this movie, I would imagine. In theory. Listen, they cast Jonathan Groff as a veteran, so. This is all hypothetical on my part. It just gave me something to think about. <laughs> That's true. Jonathan Groff showing up was very surprising. That was a yeah. really strange cameo. 
Kid can fill out a t-shirt is what I will tell you about that scene. <laughs> That's a very good note to end American Sniper on, I think. <laughs> but Jonathan Groff and his t-shirt and his artificial leg. Huh. Um, okay, we'll do a music break in there in the middle and then start talking about Still Alice. Yay! These reviews are not... Neither of these are funny movies to review, so sorry for all the silliness. Did we do good? Were we okay? Yeah, Was no, I good? you guys are great. This is fun. Like, this is just like chatting. I'd be doing this anyway, even if we weren't recording. <laughs> okay. Continuing our movies with vague Oscar tie-ins that are coming to theaters near you, we're going to talk about Still Alice, which uh, has been mentioned on this podcast a couple times. You may remember David Ehrlich being a really big fan of it, but we have yet to do a proper review. Um, it's the Alzheimer's drama starring Julianne Moore that uh, I think is better than what that description says because it's, uh, it's to me it is a much more interesting movie and uh, more thought-provoking and then also incredibly well-acted. But it's the movie that everyone thinks is going to win her her Oscar finally. She's been nominated, Joe, what, five times? Four times? This would be this five. 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 Okay, so uh, there's, a, there's a sense of overdue there. Um, but... I think that Still Alice is actually pretty worthy as it is. You know, one of those movies that is not going to have a, I don't think, a huge lingering cultural impact. It's going to be one of those things you look at in 20 years and being like, wait, that's what she won for? She didn't win for, you know, these eight other famous roles. But, yeah, I think if you see Still Alice and kind of let the, like, low-keyness of the drama work for you, it really is a it's a worthy movie to look at beyond her performance. Um, I guess I started with Nick last time. Joe, where are you with me on Still Alice? Uh, I'm kind of exactly with you. I've been tr- I've been sort of banging this drum for probably the last month or so uh, before the Oscar nominations that still Alice should be getting more attention than just in Best Actress. And a lot of that was uh, focused on some of the other performances in the movie. I've sort of gone on and and uh, about Kristen Stewart and about Alec Baldwin. And I will say. If you tweet anything nice about Kristen Stewart, you will get so much positive attention on you Twitter. You are not kidding. Yeah. I oh tell God. you, if you do, you want to have something get a hundred retweets? Just be like <laughs> Kristen Stewart was good and still Alice. That's yeah. all you need to say. Uh, those people are tenacious and and good for them. And I've never been on. Of, too bad none of them are Oscar voters. Otherwise, she'd have that nomination locked up. They should have seventeen of them <laughs> by now. Um, but no, I think I think all three of those actors, and actually, and the whole ensemble really. I think Kate Bosworth is never my favorite, but she's solid in this. Hunter Parrish as as her other son. Um, I don't know. I saw this back in Toronto, and that was sort of the for as much as somehow Toronto ended up as being the coronation for the imitation game when it won the uh the audience award there which mm-hmm. was somewhat of a head scratcher because i don't recall anybody talking about the imitation game there beyond you know and polite chitter chit chat but what the, still, uh, it's it was, what the red state section of the toronto audiences was really into you wouldn't have uh, known it as a right no 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 that's true i'm i'm on the coast <laughs> um i'm on the coast of lake ontario um <laughs> No, but I feel like Still Alice felt like one of the genuine, like, word-of-mouth surges of this year's Toronto Film Festival, where I went in, I had seen the little sort of blurb about it, and it seemed like, you know, any Julianne Moore movie is worth seeing, but it didn't seem like it was 
a must-see. And then you just started hearing from more and more people that this performance is really fantastic. And so then again, I went into it expecting, you know, a performance with a movie sort of trailing behind it. Mm. And I was impressed. I thought I thought it was emotionally affecting without being too man- manipulative. It's It's tough with a movie about Alzheimer's because it pushes so many buttons naturally. It pushes, you know, personal buttons. It pushes parental buttons. Um, but I thought it was sturdy enough in terms of the way it sort of built her life out. And it felt like it really, it, it gave her a fullness. It gave her family a fullness. It gave her career a fullness that didn't seem like it was, it existed just to then tear it down. Mm -hmm. Just to then tear it down. Yeah. Oh, just like ruin this family with horrible news. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you do you disagree? Yeah, Nick, where are you on the movie? Um, I'm in a little more of a crazy hard place, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. I I like her in it. Um, I liked the movie fine. It, it I think it did feel well. It's not fair to say it felt like a performance showcase because I agree with what you're saying that the whole ensemble is clearly on board. I really like Stephen Kunkin as her doctor a lot too, and some yeah. of my favorite scenes in it are about the dynamic of watching somebody like her character who's so self-conscious of being smart that she's impatient with what she thinks are stupid questions from a doctor. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And, and, and then he's got, um, he's not a bad doctor. We've seen like a million of those in movies, but he's not maybe got the best bedside manner in the world. I, I liked all that a lot. And the exercises um, she does, I thought were all very interesting and very sort of dramatically well partitioned out. Totally good. And she's so good in her performance at like giving herself, like you can see the moments where she thinks like, I'm, I'm beating this, whatever. I'm yeah. Not um, and so I really like her performance and I especially, I don't know, like, I feel like it's been a long time that my favorite Julianne Moore is the sort of stylized problem solving Julianne Moore who can give a performance or be in a movie that probably shouldn't work, but she can do these really mannered performances that actually pull off the director's project. And I've often been disappointed when she tries to do the acting that looks more like don't act, just be mm-hmm. acting. And this was the most I've liked her in that mode in a long time. Um, that said, I did find the script kind of schematic. I have to admit, like the idea that she's a language professor who's losing her language seemed a little neat to me. The 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 series of scenes that have a payoff of her at her computer. Um, oh, I like that felt, part actually. It. I did not like it. I just felt. Like when the first part of that was happening, it seemed like an obvious setup for how it would pay off later, I guess. Um, the only part I've, of that that I think I agree with you on is, and Joe, you might, I would like to hear someone else on it, is the stuff with Christmas Stewart where she's auditioning for Angels in America. And they're kind of like, I mean, they borrow that and she's in another play. Is it Three Sisters? She's in like a Chekhov play yeah. at some point in it. And, yes. they're, and they're just borrowing like big chunks of other plays to make kind of, kind of lend drama to the movie and that that feels kind of entry-level writerly Sundance first drama thing that I thought Uh relied a lot of the other better stuff going on in the movie I'm gonna be honest with you here Katie I am not reliable when it comes to Angels in America having to have a critical opinion of something that borrows from Angels in America. I'm such <laughs> sucker doesn't begin to describe it. So like as soon as that started, I'm like in years. I'm just I'm crying. I'm like I'm done. So you're I 
Barking at the wrong I tree. Grant that you're right, and I will say that kind of thing annoyed me in a lot of movies this year, where even a movie like Wild, which I loved, and I love the ending for Wild, but like the there were a lot of movies this year that decided that their workaround for adapting uh, a book was to just read full passages from the book. Inherent Vice did it. Um, there were quite a few, and I'm just like, okay, let's can we get back to actually like adapting instead of just sort of like giving a a, a, a filmed reading of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see where that would be a problem, particularly because this isn't even a reading of the work you're adapting. This is a reading of a third person's work. <laughs> so I get you. I feel you, but I, I can't. I'm not, the, I'm not your guy for that. Yeah. That's... I thought I loved the dynamic between the Kristen Stewart character and the Julianne Moore mm-hmm. character. And, um, the fact that the movie kind of hands itself over to that relationship, I thought was so generous on its part. Yeah. Um, I guess I feel like Kristen Stewart to me is sort of paradigmatic of the kind of actress who I think is quite charismatic and successful on screen. And I would never want to see her in a play. And I felt like those scenes did not show her acting to such great advantage because she was giving such a great performance. And then I've talked to people who feel confused about whether we were supposed to take as a character point that Lydia is not a good actress because right. the, th- the yeah. three sisters and the angels in America scene were maybe not her forte. I would. It's not always say. such a tough thing to pull off too, because to, to, to pull off acting within acting and have it supposed to be good are supposed to be impressive. And yeah. it's funny that you bring up that because I remember that this was not the only Kristen Stewart movie I saw at TIFF. Uh, Nick, you and I both saw Clouds of Sils Maria. Yeah. And not, it's not Kristen Stewart, but it's Chloe Moretz in that one where you see the play within the movie. And I think we're supposed to take that as being good acting. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought it was atrocious. <laughs> and it really was a big impediment for me uh, to like, liking that movie totally that doesn't yeah. be something that movies almost never understand that well is like when you can tell us something or like if something is good writing or something is good acting like making that performative within the story i don't know why that's always such a such a problem for them it's yeah, just it's an extra layer too much it's i don't know yeah it's also, also feels almost like a challenge to the audience like almost like a what it's like a challenge to the audience. Can you solve like, this puzzle? Mm-hmm. Or no, well, it's almost, it's like sometimes horror movies feel like challenges where like, where the audience almost takes an extra step away and just be like, prove it, scare me. <laughs> and I feel like you get that way with like, when you see somebody acting within a movie, just like prove it, show me you're good. Like, yeah. And I- it's, it's tough to live up to. And I think that's, what a lot of people would go into Still Alice expecting where it's like Julianne Moore gets sick and she cries and she has Alzheimer's and she can't remember her family members and that's where the movie becomes such a pleasant surprise to me is like I mean I, Nick I get what you're saying about kind of the lived in performances not usually being her strong suit but the lived in the lived inness of this I find really impressive and kind of the pace at which it shows her deterioration and the you know yeah. the, and you know part of that's in the writing and a lot of that's in just her and like her yeah. believing she can beat this and then not doing it. And then you can sometimes you'll go into a scene and not know what kind of shape she'll be in the same way that the characters are. You know, she comes up to Kristen oh. Stewart backstage at the play and like introduces herself and you don't really get what she's doing for a while there. And I think that's probably really true to the experience of Alzheimer's and makes it a more dramatically interesting movie. You know, it's not a movie where someone coughs and then has cancer and then dies. It's so much more complicated and back and forth than that. Yeah, I agree. 
And it's pretty brave, I think, of the movie to stop where it does. Mm-hmm. Which is all we can probably say about it. But for yeah. the same reason, it's not it's not setting up the trajectory either within the story or in your relationship to the performances that you might think it is, where you can expect what you're probably going to have to watch. It's yeah. not that. And I'm certainly incredibly interested to see the next movie from this filmmaking team pair. Yeah. Well, if there is one. Oh, well, is there yes. Going to be? Well, you know, one of them is quite, quite, quite sick. That's right. Yes. Um, so. Yeah. The words were barely out of my mouth before I realized that, but yeah. God. As if the review of Still Alice could not be more of a downer. We have now <laughs> made it more of a downer. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I guess, all right, all right, so I'll end it by talking about the Oscars, because that's just my, uh, my yeah. Clint Eastwoodian default. Um, I mean, do you guys think this is a good choice as Julianne Moore's Oscar movie? Because that's what we have. Like, is it, is it, is history going to smile well on this? I'm always somebody who, I don't get too crazy about needing actors to have won for their, you know, quote unquote, best performance. I think everything is so situational and I'm fine with that. You know, obviously if she had won right off the bat for Boogie Nights, that would have been so incredibly like iconic and worthy. Um, but then, you know, who knows that I feel like, you know, the, the moment we'll get with her winning after such a, you know, such a good long stretch of a career and, and maybe for a while thinking, you know, it wasn't going to happen for her. Um, I don't know. I, I tend to be somewhat zen about that kind of thing, unless it's a really sort of shitty movie or like phoned in performance, and it feels like you know too preordained. Um, I think that was that sort of the, the, the Zellweger trap for a while for something where everybody was just sort of like, "Well, you know, you penciled this one in before she even <laughs> filmed the movie." So, um, or like the Alan Arkin thing, where I feel like the only thing you're voting for is the career, right? But yeah. right. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm kind of with you. Like, I, I feel like if somebody ever told me, like, I liked what you did this year, I didn't love it, but I've loved your work for so long, I want to give you a prize anyway, I'd be like, thanks. Wow. Yeah. Great. So yeah, I don't. I surprises always. Let's just put that out there. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's fine. And I also think it's the kind of performance that, um, I don't personally relate to that category as though there's something else that's being really unfairly denied because they're paying dues to somebody who's, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. owed. And, um, and I think it's an interesting performance. I think actors would be especially earnest in voting for that performance. I think for all the reasons that we've all been talking about, that performance is pretty hard and probably the difficulty of it is especially obvious to actors. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, you know, I'm fine. I'm, I'm glad and if Nathaniel were here and he meant to be, he would point out that he's been saying for years that Shirley Booth in 1952 was the only woman who's ever won in her 50s in this category. That you tend to have to be a living legend a little older or young. And so yeah. just the fact that she's getting recognized right now is so great. Yeah. If, uh, Joe, you as the person who loves to play alternate Oscar history, if Reese Witherspoon did not already have an Oscar, I feel like this conversation would be really different. But uh, <laughs> she already has one, so give one to Julianne Moore. This conversation between the three of us would certainly be very different. Yes. Um, I don't know if the overall conversation. No, I don't either. But we would because all. I, I would have much more anger if that were the case. In a, in a better world, Wild would be getting a whole lot more attention. But this is not the podcast for me to talk about that for the seventeen hundredth <laughs> time this year. Yeah, but yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, the listeners of this podcast have been giving me props for uh, st- sticking to my guns on Wild. So uh, you should. You're in a safe it's place. It's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, as is still Alice. So uh, either way, you're in good shape, Oscar voters. And now yeah. it's even out. You could actually see it. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations, everybody. It's a nice little bonus yeah. to have the movies be available for once. Slightly wrong question, which uh, I don't have the listener answers to, but you guys had such good answers that I decided to include it anyway. Is uh, in honor of Mordecai, which movie character's facial hair is most important to their character? Uh, and Nick, you had a great answer. Well, I was hoping this was in honor of American Sniper because that was one fuck <laughs> beard, which is the most important thing to say about that movie. But uh, yeah, even above such stiff competition, it's Gustav for me in a landslide, Grand Budapest. Yeah, it's a really fine look, fine looking mustache. It's amazing the performance is even better than... Like, you learn so much about him just seeing the mustache. It's amazing that you learn even more about him because the performance is so good. But. Uh, and Joe? Yeah, I was going to say uh, um, Macon Blair in Blue Ruin, also from this year. I, I, I'm sure if I uh, sat down and thought through all the years of movie history, I could come up with uh, some other ones. But no, I feel like his thing, it becomes a plot point when he 